You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Hello, church family. So glad that I can be with you in these really strange conditions. We thought that 2020 was going to be our most exciting year, but 2021 seems to be pretty exciting as well. This is the first time actually in 17 years of being at third that I can ever remember us having three weekends in a row having snow and ice like this. Um, and I, I only one or two times where the power has actually been out in the building. But I'm so grateful that we can still connect uh, in this way. Here I am in a cold, <laughs> dark room. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that some of you may also be um, in a dark, cold room and maybe watching, I don't know, from your cell phones or something like that. And um, we just want you to know that we love you and that we are here for you. If you are in need or in any crisis today, would you please reach out to us and let us know? Um, let's continue to persevere through these really unusual circumstances that we're all in together. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in this series that we've been in called Church, The Church in a Time of Crisis. What we're doing is we're asking, what would it mean for us to be an alternative community that is responding to the crises in our world right now differently than the world around us? Uh, what would it mean for the Spirit of God to be so changing us as a community of Jesus that we're no longer responding to the problems and the conflicts and the struggles around us out of our base fleshly human impulses and reactions, but that we are responding out of our union with Jesus through the Spirit of God. And if we did that, we would look more like Jesus. We would resemble him, which is essentially the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of Jesus. So we're asking, how can we repent and renew our faith in Jesus so that we can more and more resemble him? with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? How can we be an alternative community that resembles Jesus in this time of crisis? So we've looked at um, love and we looked at joy, and today we're looking at peace. What does it mean for us to be people of peace in a time of conflict? Um, So I'm going to pray, and then uh, Sultan Hubbard is going to read our scripture for today. Um, So let's go to God and ask him for help. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the word of God that always brings light. And we pray, Lord, that you would cast your light now upon the reading and preaching of your word, that we would not just hear it with our ears, but that we would respond to it as doers of your word, uh, responding with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's hear God's word. Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And John chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, kids, I wonder if there are any of you who are watching that love Legos. Uh, we love Legos in our household. Um, I actually loved Legos as a kid, and I have kept all of my Legos from my childhood. And um, my kids love Legos, especially my my younger ones. And uh, we have lots of Legos everywhere in our house. Actually, our basement is full of them. Um, and something that you probably know if you've ever bought a Lego set is that what's interesting, when you buy a Lego set, I wish I had one here today to show you, but it comes with a box, right? And on the box, there's a picture. There's a picture of... Uh, what the whole set will look like. And it's a picture of a beautiful train station or, you know, a Harry Potter castle or, um, you know, a space a space station or whatever it is that you're going to build. But then when you open the box, what do you have? You have just a bunch of hundreds of tiny little pieces. You don't have what it looked like on the box. You have all these fragmented and disassociated pieces. And you've got to, of course, put it together. So eventually it looks like that that whole, it looks like the picture on the box, what all those pieces will be once they're all put together the way they're supposed to be. I want you to keep that image in your mind as we talk about what the Bible means by peace, as we talk about peace today. I wonder what you think of when you hear that word, peace. What do you think of? You think of maybe a, a cup of hot steaming tea uh, or maybe your favorite Spotify playlist is you know Peaceful Piano. Uh, is mine, one of mine is. Uh, maybe you think of a, uh, your favorite scented candle um, or, you know, looking out onto a early morning when snow is covering the trees, although you maybe may be getting tired of that. Um, that is peace. You know, we often think of those images when we think of peace, and that's really peace as tranquility or um, inner peace or peace as an absence of conflict, conflict within, your, within yourself or trouble or conflict in the world. But that is not exactly what the Bible means when it talks about peace. Uh, not Peace in scripture is not so much an internal state of tranquility as it, or even an absence of conflict. But peace in scripture is actually much more about what God wants to put together in the world. The, the, the biggest, most important word uh, for peace in the whole scripture is that word that I hope you know that we love here at Third Now, that word shalom. Shalom is a word that is used innumerable times in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word that we translate peace in our English Bibles, but a much more accurate translation of shalom is wholeness or uh, completeness. It's a, it's, it's a picture on the box. It's, it's what God intends the world to be his vision for a world that is rightly ordered, rightly put together. And we get a picture of that throughout the scriptures in many places. And we see that picture of Shalom in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we see it in the prophets as they talk about what God will one day do. Uh, we see it in the life of Jesus when he begins to restore broken things. And we see it in the, la in the ending of the book of Revelation. And what we see is in those pictures, it is a picture of a world made right. It is a world of right relationships, rightly ordered relationships, where God's relationship with humanity is restored, humanity's relationship with one another is restored, and humanity's relationship with themselves and even the creation itself is restored. It's a world of diverse community where nations and cultures and races are living in harmony. It's a world of economic and cultural flourishing where people can engage in fulfilling work. 
Uh, it's a world of justice and mercy, purity and holiness, beauty and creativity. It's a world that protects the vulnerable. It's a world without violence, a world without death, a world without tears, a world without sorrow. That's shalom. That's peace. The, the world as God intends it to be. Don't you want to live in a world like that? Maybe, maybe, maybe turn to someone that you're worshiping with today and look at them and say, don't you want to live in a world like that? Do it right now. I know it's kind of awkward, but do it. Don't you want to live in a world like that? I do. I think we all do. And that's what the world, that's what the Bible means by shalom. That's what the world means by peace. The world that God wants, the world as God intends it to be. So from this, we really are getting a definition of what biblical peace is. Biblical peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness. Biblical peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness. Now, here's the problem. This is not the world we have. This is certainly uh, not the world we have because the only way to get a world like that is when God is reigning as a good and gracious king. But we know that humans have rejected God as a good king um, and that we've decided to be our own little uh, queens and kings instead. And the Bible says that when this happened, the shalom, the peace, the wholeness of the world began to disintegrate and unravel. And so instead of having a world of wholeness and completion with rightly ordered relationships, we have a world of fragmentation and conflict. So our relationship with God is broken. The Bible says there's now enmity and separation between us and God. Our relationship with each other is now broken and marked by conflict and uh, separation and isolation. Even our relationship with ourselves is broken as we experience uh, disordered anxiety and insecurity in ourselves. And our relationship with creation itself and all the nations are broken. And so we experience this profound fragmentation uh, in the world that we're not experiencing shalom in any way. And, you know, I don't know about you, but um, this time that we're living in for the last year or so, I think we're all experiencing that sense of conflict and, sh and fragmentation, perhaps more than you've ever felt it before. Uh, many of us are experiencing internal, interior conflict, um, record levels of anxiety, and depression are being reported right now. Uh, we also are experiencing a lot of exterior, uh, even relational conflict and fragmentation. Even if you're not actually having a literal conflict with people that you love, uh, we're feeling separated and disconnected from each other because of the pandemic conditions. And on top of all of this, the pandemic has revealed just how truly um, um, polarized we are politically, economically, racially, socially, it's pretty commonplace to hear that we are living in one of the most polarized times in American history. Uh, a recent survey by Pew Research actually found that that is literally true. Um, in their survey, this is what they said, quote, a powerful alignment of ideology, race, and religion renders America's divisions unusually encompassing and profound. It is hard to find another example of polarization in the world or history that fuses all three major types of identity divisions in a similar way. So in other words, what they're saying is, it is actually difficult to find any time in history or in the world today where a land is experiencing as much profound fragmentation as we are right now. So we're longing for shalom. We're longing for peace. Maybe like we've never longed for it before. And we're not just longing for tranquility or an absence of conflict. I think we're longing for wholeness. Completeness, shalom, a world as God intends it to be. How do we get that? Don't you want that? Well, 
We know as Christians that the only way we'll really get that is when Jesus returns as king and he restores creation. He, he restores shalom. But here's what's wonderful is that Paul says right here in Galatians 5 in the fruit of the spirit that we can already through the spirit of God in us begin to experience a foretaste of shalom, peace. We can begin to experience it in ourselves, in our relationship with God and with other people. We can be agents of peace in God's world. How does that happen? Well, let's just look at a few things that we can do uh, to to actually begin to experience this peace. First of all, we can receive the peace that God made. Receive the peace that God made. Now, Paul in Galatians 5 is really talking about peace as a fruit of our character, but he also spends lots of time talking about the peace that God has created definitively in what he calls the gospel of peace. You know, think about all the many conflicts we have in our lives. Uh, These are dwarfed in comparison to the conflicts that God has on his hands, right? God has a whole humanity in rebellion against him. The people that he made to be in relationship with him rejected him. The nations that he created to live in harmony, completely separated. The, the, The world itself that he intended to live, to be in shalom, falling apart. I mean, God has a serious conflict on his hands. Talk about a problem, right? But what does God do? to address this problem of fragmentation and conflict in his own relationship with people and creation. Well, what does God do? He moves in. He's a peacemaker. He, he works. He sacrifices himself in love to make peace. So Colossians 1 says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of Christ. Friends, this is the most amazing truth of the gospel that apart from our initiative, apart from our effort, apart from our labor, apart from even our asking for it, God initiated in love to make peace with himself and humanity, doing it through Jesus. And there is nothing for us to do except to believe and receive what God has done for us to make peace. So Paul says it this way in Romans 5, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I mean, this is an amazing sentence. God is, Paul has just spent numerous chapters in Romans describing how totally separated we are from God because of our sin. He actually says we we are God's enemies. We actually hate God because God, of God's authority and we distrust him and we distrust his power and authority in our lives. We are separated from him. And in light of this massive separation, God has acted to save us and forgive and restore us through Jesus to justify us. Justify means to make right. Our relationship with God was broken. God has made it right. And he's done it through Jesus. He's justified us, made us right with him by grace. So now we can have peace with God. This this objective restoration of wholeness in our relationship with God. What that means is that you can have peace of heart and peace of conscience. You can be free of guilt and fear when it comes to God. No more anxiety about God's verdict on your life or judgment on the last day. You are declared right with God. And nothing can ever, no matter what you do, nothing can ever change that. You belong to the family you are in. By God's grace. Isn't that amazing? See, peace is at the heart of the gospel. If you want to have the fruit of peace 
in your life, the first thing you need to do is to trust in the peace that God has created for you through Jesus. And that just means confessing your sin, confessing your rebellion against God, your enmity, your distrust, your separation, and just receiving what God has already done for you in Jesus. And not only does God restore you to wholeness with him, but he gives you the gift of the spirit of Jesus to live inside of you, who then begins to create and cultivate peace, the fruit of peace in your life. So that, that's the first thing. If you're not at peace with God, the spirit of God won't be in you at work to create the fruit of peace. So the first thing we can do is to receive the peace that God has made. Have you done that? Are you right with God? Receive the peace that God made. The second thing that we can do is practice the peace that God gives. So, you know, the first point is about the objective relationship of peace that God has restored because of Jesus. Once you have been made right with God, nothing can change that. You can no more undo your right relationship with God than you can change the position of the Son. It's a fixed reality because of Jesus' death and resurrection. However, our experience of subjective peace can certainly change. I mean, we live in a troubled world and challenging circumstances. Our experience of peace can be very fluctuating even as our objective status of peace with God is fixed. And so that's why Jesus says to his disciples, you know, in a very troubling circumstance, as they are aware that of his impending death, Jesus says to them in our reading today, my peace I give you. In this world of trouble, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You can experience internal peace in the midst of great trial. Paul says it this way in Philippians 4. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here that you can have peace even in the worst circumstances. Remember, Paul is not uh, on a beach or on a mountain retreat sipping tea. He's in prison. He's saying, I, I, he's experiencing peace, even in the worst circumstances. And he says, look, you can have a assurance and confidence of God's love and care and protection, even in the midst of the greatest uncertainty and trouble. Don't you want that? Don't we all need a big dose of that right now? <laughs> that kind of assurance of God's love and faithfulness, even in trouble. Well, here's the key. Paul says, practice it practice peace. He doesn't say just sit around and wait for God to zap you. He says practice the experience, being putting into practice the peace that is now yours through Jesus. You know, I um, when I was in high school, I taught myself how to fly fish basically by watching Brad Pitt fish in River Runs Through, <laughs> which is a terrible way to learn how to fly fish. And so for years, I would go out on a river and fly fish the wrong way. And I never caught a single fish. I just thought the fish were dumb, right? It was me that was dumb because I had completely the wrong form. I didn't know how to fly fish. But for years, I was practicing fishing and doing fishing the wrong way. Well, a few years ago, Dave Scove and Mac Myers, who are the two best fishermen I know, um, took me out to a park and they taught me how to fish in the right way. They taught me how to hold my wrist. They taught me how to move my arm. They taught me how to flip, you know, use my elbow. Um, but it wasn't like suddenly when I got in the river, I could just do it well. My instinctual habit was to fish the wrong way. And so it took great deliberation and intentionality to fish the right way. And eventually, after practicing over and over again, I began 
to catch some fish. And so here's, that's a good illustration of what Paul's talking about here. He says our hearts, because our hearts are in rebellion against God and we basically live our lives without God instinctually, the habit of our heart is control, worry, and fear. That's the instinctual habit of our heart to react in every situation. We think we're alone, we think we're in control, and so we worry and we fear, right? That's the instinctual habit of our heart. But Paul says, look, now the truth is that you have been made right with God. You have a father who loves you. You don't have to be in control anymore. You can depend on the father's love and care, but it takes practice to train your heart to live in that intimate relationship of dependence on the father so that you're no longer reacting out of fear and anxiety, but you're now training your heart to respond to instable situations out of love and trust and dependence on the father's care. It takes great practice to nurture that kind of relationship with God. Just like you can't learn how to fish by watching a video or reading a book, you gotta practice it. It takes practice. Uh, this peace of God is not automatic. It doesn't just come by knowing the right stuff in your head, but by intentionally living the right kind of life in the way you nurture your life with God. Imagine you went to a therapist uh, and the therapist asks you to describe your relationship with your, your, your spouse, D describe your marriage. And you begin to say, well, you know, marriage is a timeless institution. It is a, uh, a, a mutual covenant between uh, uh, two people and, and it is for the, the ordering of society and the procreation and the birth and nurture of children. And you begin to describe with great uh, intellect the institution of marriage. And the therapist stops you and says, that's, that's great, you know, but tell me about your relationship with your spouse. And you say, uh, we we really don't talk. You know how dysfunctional, right? You know everything about marriage, but you have a you have virtually no ongoing intimate relationship with the person you're actually married to. And this is the same in much of our relationship with God, our life with God. A lot of us can give all the right information. We can give lots of Bible answers. We can describe what a biblical worldview is. We can give lots of theology, but your actual relationship with God is non-existent. You respond to all of the challenges, difficulties, heartaches. Uh, challenges of life out of the, the instinctual fleshly behaviors of your heart, which is always rooted in anxiety and fear. It's not that you don't believe in God. It's that God has nothing to do with how you actually are living. So real peace is to put into practice a settled trust in the Father's care, a trust that no matter what happens, God is near, God is faithful, to trust that depends on his faithfulness, not in your abilities, but in God's goodness and provision. It takes time and deliberate effort to experience the peace of God, to begin living out what is already true. Paul mentions a number of practices in Philippians 4, prayer in everything, thanksgiving, training your mind to focus on the things of the kingdom, what is lovely, true, excellent, and praiseworthy, in direct contrast to the way that we are prone to live, I am strong enough, wise enough, competent enough to navigate the difficult circumstances of life on my own, which always leads to anxiety and fear. Paul is counseling us to instead practice prayerful dependence, ongoing thanksgiving, centering your mind on the goodness of God, bringing God right into the center of your minute-by-minute -minute life. It means learning to live a life of dependence on the Father's care. And the more you put it into practice, the more you put these things into practice in your daily life, you find that you are beginning to catch some fish. You're experiencing peace because you're learning how to live a different kind of life. Jesus says, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You can experience that now, friends, but you got to put it into practice. Why not start a new habit? Why not start with just during Lent, showing up for 7 a.m. prayer every weekday morning? It's just a simple thing, but to begin a new habit of beginning your day with a settled trust in the Father's care, that practice ultimately leads to peace. So what did we learn? Receive the peace that God made. Practice the peace that God gives. Finally, one last thing, pursue the peace that God commands. This is perhaps most relates to, I think, what Paul's talking about here in Galatians 5, because overwhelmingly in the New Testament, peace is commanded. Peace is a responsibility of the follower of Jesus to pursue and to work for. Remember, peace is shalom, it's wholeness. Peace is a restoration of right relationships, and God's people are called to be peacemakers. So in Ephesians 2, to a church that is deeply divided racially and culturally between these two camps, Paul tells them that Christ himself is your peace. He's made the two of you one, torn down the dividing wall. And so he says, it's now your responsibility to put that peace into practice in the reconciliation of your relationships. Make peace. He tells them in Colossians 3, as members of one body, you are called to peace. And Romans 14, 19, he says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And of course, Jesus himself commands us in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Because God has made peace, reconciled all things through Jesus, is now our responsibility through the Spirit to make peace, shalom, and wholeness in the world. And it's clear that biblical peace is inherently social. To be at peace only within oneself is not shalom. Peace is not a state of mind but a way of life. Making peace means establishing and maintaining wholeness in all of one's relationships, working for right relationships in the world. We're called to do that wherever there is conflict or fragmentation. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's be clear about this. Because we live in a pretty volatile environment, there's lots of talk sometimes of the need for peace. But I think we need to fill out what that means. Sometimes we confuse making peace with keeping peace. Right? That is just like keeping everyone agreeable, keeping and maintaining the status quo so no one gets upset. But making peace is not the same thing as keeping peace. True peacemaking is not passive. It is not inactive. It is not silent, especially in the face of any brokenness or disorder in the world. Biblical peace, remember, is shalom. It means wholeness, completeness, well-being, the world that God wants. So silence and inaction in the face of conflict or suffering or injustice is not peace. It's not peacemaking. That's the opposite of peacemaking. That's apathy and compromise. You know, Ed um, Satterfield reminded me of, reminded us as a staff when we were talking about this, of two very different but powerful stories of Jesus acting as a peacemaker. The first is the story of Jesus calming the storm, right? We love that story. Jesus, uh, the storm is raging. Jesus stands up, calms the storm. Everything is quiet. Jesus takes what is stormy and chaotic and makes it calm. Now contrast that with the story of Jesus entering the temple in Mark 11 and Matthew 21 and encountering a grave injustice in the temple. In the court of the Gentiles, the place where the, the nations, the Gentiles, were invited to come and encounter the living God, uh, the Jewish folks had set up merchant tables, had basically excluded the Gentiles from the temple by setting up their 
business in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus is infuriated about this. He makes a whip. He starts yelling, my house will be a house of prayer for the nations and you have made it into a den of robbers. He starts flipping over tables. Oh my goodness. What is Jesus doing? Jesus, in this case, in the first case, he takes a something that is chaotic and stormy and makes it calm. And here Jesus takes a situation that is calm and he makes it chaotic and stormy. And yet in both cases, he is making shalom. Do you see that? In the first story, he is calming a storm. In the second one, he is making a storm. But in both, he is restoring right relationships. He is restoring uh, what is where there is disorder, where there's brokenness in the world, whether that's fear and chaos or injustice and exclusion. He is rightly ordering the world. He's making shalom. So Jesus is calling us to be that kind of peacemaker who follow after him. And that often means discomfort. Sometimes it means disruption. You know, this summer when many of our black brothers and sisters were, were crying out about their own experience of racism, both personal and structural, for them living in this place that we live. You know, many even of their fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, were saying to them, you know, would you stop being divisive? Would you stop being creating conflict? Would you stop talking about the past? Would you just move on so we can have peace? But friends, that confuses peace with personal comfort. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to grapple with truth about sin and to work for a more loving and just world of shalom. Sometimes it actually creates conflict, but that's okay because remember, peace is not comfort. Peace is shalom. Our call is not to keep peace, but to make peace. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. And so we give ourselves to identifying anywhere in the world where there is brokenness, disorder, suffering, injustice, fragmentation, where the pieces of God's world have fallen apart, and we work to restore truth and goodness and wholeness. Yet to do it also means we do this in the spirit of love. You know, in Romans 14 and 15, Paul's trying to coach the young church and how to work through the very significant differences they have with each other. There were all kinds of cultural and ideological and social divisions in this early church, and they were threatening to fragment. And Paul acknowledges this conflict, but what's interesting is he doesn't paper over it. He says in Romans 14, 1, there will always be disputable matters in the church, he says. And yet Paul calls them not to agree with one another, but to accept one another in the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He calls them to honor each other, to not look down on each other, to embrace each other no matter what. He, he urges them against contempt and condemnation, be patient with one another, recognize that all of us will always be at different places in our Christian walk and our understanding and our maturity. So friends, in this time of great conflict, where there is so much conflict both in the world and even in the church, it's so vital that the world witnesses what true peacemaking is all about. It's, it's vital that the church model that. And that means that we don't avoid conflict. Uh, we are willing to talk about hard and difficult things, but we refuse to... Uh, be like the, the, the cancel culture around us that dismisses opponents as less than dignity, you know, that undignifies those that we disagree with. It means even in the tensest moments, we carefully watch our words, we acknowledge the other person's dignity and value, we guard our hearts from hatred and tribalism. We are slow to defend ourselves. We are quick to listen, quick to apologize. We refuse gossip. We refuse to slander each other. We refuse to separate ourselves from each other, but we commit ourselves to one another 
in love. This is what it means to make peace. We actually have, if you're interested in this more, we actually have a resolving everyday conflict course that is truly excellent that is coming up in the end of February. So you can look for that because it's an online course that we have available. Make every effort, Paul says, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.33. So let's conclude. We've seen that maybe peace is different than you thought. Peace is not tranquility. It is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of wholeness. Peace is shalom. And peace, like all the other fruits, is both gift and task. It is something that God gives and creates, but is also something that we work, cultivate, and practice. Like a farmer, we know only God can ultimately bring out fruit and harvest from the ground. And yet it is something that we have a responsibility to weed and cultivate and work for. And that means to experience the fruit of the spirit of peace means that we receive the peace that God gives conclusively through Jesus We practice the peace that God gives in our daily life, and we pursue the peace that God commands in the world. And they all hang together. To be peacemakers in the world and with other people, we need to have an inner peace that is able to remain calm and stable no matter the heat and pressure. So we're not always projecting our fear and anxiety onto the people around us. So to be a peacemaker with others, we have to have peace inside of ourselves. But to have peace inside of ourselves, we have to know peace with God, which only comes through God's gift of grace in Jesus. So God creates peace through Jesus. He gives us that ongoing subjective peace through the spirit that we put into practice. And then he calls us to make shalom in the world. Let's let's close in prayer. And I I just want to close using this wonderful prayer of St. Francis. Let's pray together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.